0: For the week of January 31st, 2014, this is the Energy Gang podcast from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, senior editor with Green Tech Media, behind the mic in Washington, D.C., and spread out over different points throughout D.C., brought together digitally is the rest of the gang. Catherine Hamilton is at her offices downtown. She's the founder of 38 North Solutions, a clean energy public policy consulting firm. Catherine, how are you this afternoon?
1: Just great. It's a balmy 30-something degrees now.
0: Yeah, it feels a lot better. And, you know, we were just uh, visiting you at your offices this morning, and I swear you're up to something covert over there. I mean, the check-in process to your building is intense. I thought they were going to, like, scan my eyeballs or ask for a DNA sample.
1: Yeah, we're, we're pretty secretive over here at 38 North. (laughs)
0: so i'm not sure where he is in the city he could be podcasting from a taxi for all i know it's jigger shaw fresh from a book signing event here in the city jigger is of course the author of creating climate wealth and he's also an investor in the space jigger how's it going how was the uh, book signing event
2: it was awesome you know i i was doing it with the wharton energy club and it's pretty amazing how powerful this club is. They get their own tables at the National Press Club and all sorts of other things. It's pretty kind of fun. So
0: people have been responding to the book pretty well?
2: Yeah. You know, I think a lot of folks are looking for sort of a way to make sense of it all. So it'll be, it'll be interesting.
0: Well, they have this podcast as well. Uh, so here we are all in the same city but podcasting from different locations. I don't know if this is an example of uh, – technology dividing us or bringing us together but speaking of being together i want to mention that on april 1st here in dc we're going to have another live show and that will be at the building energy summit we're going to be talking about intelligent efficiency there and you can find out uh, more about that event uh, at 2014.buildingenergysummit.com and i'll have more details on that as we get them and uh, waiting patiently in the background is our special guest. Adding to this week's lineup is T.J. Diora. He's the director of business development for power, gas, and renewables at the global research firm IHS. T.J., how are you? You're in D.C. as well.
3: I am. Appreciate the opportunity to come join you guys for the conversation.
0: Yeah, you bet. And uh, you and Jigger know each other pretty well, right? I understand you guys have had some good debates with each other over the over some pints of beer on energy issues. That uh,
3: that sums up our relationship, I think, quite nicely. I think uh, I'm not sure I've ever seen Jigger
2: outside of a bar. <laughs> I, I do my finest work with alcohol in
0: my hand. Yeah, this is why we all podcast from different locations because Jigger's at a bar sometimes. All right, we're going to try to recreate that this week, but uh, we've got coffee instead of beer. So TJ is uh, on the gang this week to talk about the intersection of fossil fuels and renewables, more specifically natural gas, but we'll talk about oil too. We're going to explore the impact that the domestic fossil fuel boom is having on renewables investment. Then it's on to the State of the Union. We'll dissect the president's words on energy and climate, and in our last segment, we'll discuss the booming solar jobs market. Of course, at the end of the show, we'll try to tell you something you may not know. All right, let's get going. In his State of the Union, President Obama once again angered environmentalists by touting his all-of-the-above energy strategy. Pointing to the booming domestic oil and gas market, Obama said fossil fuels, more specifically natural gas, are creating a bridge to clean energy. And we've heard this many times. We'll talk about the president's comments later in the show but now it's time to talk about that bridge how long it is and even if it exists um, so TJ your team puts together a lot of really deep research on the oil gas and renewable energy markets can we say that the changes in the fossil fuel industry has had a direct investment a direct impact on investment in renewables
3: yeah I think I think undoubtedly uh, it has had a suppressive effect I think there is some debate, though, on, you know, is that a long-term phenomenon or just uh, in the short term? And when you talk about investment, are you talking about investments in technology and the venture capital space, or are you talking about investments in deployment? Clearly, if natural gas was ten dollars uh, a million BTU, like it was, uh, and even higher, like it was uh, when I was first uh, getting into the industry uh, seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, and, then, and absolutely, we'd be seeing a quicker pace, um, you know, maybe 10%, 20%, 30%, uh, a stronger pace of, of wind and solar deployments. Um, but with the incredible uh, cost declines in both wind and solar, um, they're actually holding their own pretty well, uh, considering all the other turmoil uh... that those technologies are faced with when it comes to policy support uh... and uh, integration issues
0: what do you mean by integration issues just in terms of intermittency Um, intermittency, but also how uh,
3: renewables interact with the grid. So we think about uh, in wholesale power markets, um, renewable energy, wind primarily, but also to some degree solar, are suppressing wholesale power prices, which are uh, really putting some strong pressure on existing uh, baseload power plants, and in some cases, even some combined cycle power plants. Um, And there's a real question on how is that going to further exacerbate concerns about uh, integrating uh, a variable resource like wind or solar. And uh, I think we need to continue to figure out from an engineering challenge how we're going to uh, overcome those. Uh, and, th- and that may actually be uh, what is the throttle on the deployments.
2: I, but I guess, TJ, like I'm trying to understand what the impact of the gas price spike in the last 30 days has had. When you think about um, wholesale power prices in the Northeast. I mean, they're going to pay 30% higher wholesale price in 2014 than they did in 2013 because of natural gas prices going from 350 a million BTU to, I think, what is it now, 525.
3: Uh, I think I think that's a, a brings another good point of of part of the value that renewables bring to the system and and bring to a. Uh, diversified fuel portfolio, which is, you know, they're a great hedge on volatile fuel prices, uh, whether it be natural gas or um, in the past, we've been concerned about coal volatility.
0: Let's give our listeners a little bit of context here. So natural gas is about 40% of power capacity in New England and in New York. It's about 30% of capacity in the mid-Atlantic region. And this recent couple of cold snaps has caused gas prices to surge. in in some cases, the highest level in a decade in in various regions, um, causing power prices to surge as well on the spot market. Um, And in PJM, actually, around 20% of capacity went offline due to tight gas supplies. Obviously, this is due to pipeline constraints. That's a major factor here. Um, But does that long term, TJ, make you nervous about the volatility of natural gas and and the risks in, in the technology?
3: Yeah, I think it's it kind of speaks more to the complementary nature of renewables and natural gas. Um, You know, if we're thinking about this, um, if we put climate aside for for a second, and we'll get back to that topic. But if you think about just this natural complementary uh, nature of natural gas as a relatively low capex, uh, but um, nowadays moderate fuel price, uh, but some volatility there, and you compare that to the high capex but zero fuel price. and very very low cost to overall marginal cost renewables. Um, I think that's a very very nice complementary port, portfolio. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's going to be a need to invest in infrastructure. Um, you know, not only the the gathering and, and transport infrastructure to get the gas to market, but even within the markets to make sure that we've got the capacity to get the gas uh, from the city gate to the power plants themselves. I mean, we've we've you know definitely. Definitely seen some pressure um, on you know who who has priority. The power plants have priority. The industrial users have priority in gas in places that haven't seen much infrastructure investment. And I think you know that is a that is something that has to be addressed and something that that has to be solved. Um, but you know just like there are, are challenges across the supply chain with with any generation source.
1: TJ, I have a question for you. Um, how do you see energy storage participating in this? I know that. Uh, the energy storage industry really feels like it can help make natural gas um, much more efficient, um, increase its capacity factor by being able to help it ramp, and then also be able to, you know, fully integrate renewables in the, you know, in the entire grid system. So I just wondered what you, how you think about energy storage.
3: You know, it's funny when I was a wind energy developer, uh, not that many years ago, um, you know, we'd be approached from time to time by folks who are saying, hey, you need, you know, come, come buy our batteries or come invest in our, our compressed air storage or whatever for your wind farms. And we kind of blew them off. And we said, you know, really, you know, if your technology is going to be cost effective, it's going to be cost effective for you know, in the market, you know, on the grid, not just for, um, not just, you know, on our side of the bus. And the, um, it, it, we're actually starting to see those markets develop and, and we're seeing, you know, folks actually invest in storage, uh, you know, based on the markets and, and regardless of what you know fuel mix is, but but trying to help with ancillary services. Now, specifically, you know, batteries still look a bit expensive uh, for this type of application. But um, you know, we're not orders of magnitude off on cost. We're we're much further down that cost decline curve, and so definitely a very interesting place in a in a, in a space to keep a good eye on.
0: So, do you guys have any projections for future gas prices based on? maybe potential LNG exports, the increased use of natural gas for transportation, which the president in his recent State of the Union said he wants to increase, obviously the build-out of new generation capacity. I mean, EIA is relatively uh, conservative in its projections, saying that natural gas prices won't rise all that much. But when you put these together, I mean, a lot of people suspect that gas prices will, will become more volatile and rise accordingly. And I'm curious where you guys sit on this. I mean, how do you factor those?
3: Uh, We have some models here that suggest that wind can uh, earn its required return at less than $40 per megawatt hour. And from an all-in cost basis, nothing can can beat that. So again, we expect wind energy to continue to to come online and be a part of that mix and uh, expect solar to to continue to make uh, inroads as well. Uh, and grow uh and continue its boom, thinking about the factors when it comes to natural gas, you know again there's a lot of natural gas out there, and the volatility is driven by you know two factors so so one factor is the fact that when gas prices are low, you tend to have folks uh in the oil and gas industry focus on producing oil, and as gas prices creep back up, they shift their rigs back into gas production, and that can be increases volatility because of the decline curves that you see from an individual well or after a series of fracks uh, that occur on that well and so you know there's a pretty steady decline you know the first year or two you see a pretty big drop off so there has to be constant activity otherwise you'll see a drop off in in production so that that relatively steep decline curve in the production of gas from the unconventional sources um, can drive volatility if folks aren't committed to continually uh redrilling or refracking uh, on the as you move down the supply chain um, we do have storage which which should uh, ease some of that that volatility but we can get into situations and, and you've alluded to and you've, we've seen it in the northeast especially where the storage capacity or sorry the, the transport capacity is not sufficient to uh, meet demand uh, as quickly and that will require some investment so you know it's it's really a question of will we see the investment that's necessary in the transport and distribution of natural gas to um, make sure that supply is available and I think those are really the bigger issues on volatility when you think about the demand side on that um natural gas for transportation does have promise, but it has promise in uh, niches. It has promise in long haul trucking. It has promise in in marine applications, um, rail transport. But um, you know we're a little more bearish on its promise for uh, passenger vehicles, uh, given the um, fueling infrastructure still has to be built out. And even if it ha- even if we do have fueling infrastructure built out, there's a couple technological issues that that prevent mass adoption. Um, you know we think about things like the fuel tanks. Uh, to get the same range, you require a much bigger tank uh, for a natural gas vehicle versus a gasoline or diesel vehicle. And so, you know, most people aren't willing to sacrifice their trunk to ensure a 350 or 450 mile range vehicle. So um, there are going to be some limits to what transportation niches, you know, we can see natural gas uh, move into. Um, And then as far as LNG exports go, um, there, you know, is going to be uh, a somewhat um, staggered pace in seeing those come online, and we think the long cycles that are required to um, get these facilities online, coupled with global competition, will mean that the bottleneck in supply um, will 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 not be in production, and so you know we don't expect that uh, the LNG facilities will outpace the ability to get more production online. So again, you know, we don't see that as much as a driver of volatility as we do fundamental supply issue just month to month or year to year as well as the infrastructure needed to get the gas into domestic markets.
0: Well, let's touch on this transportation piece because Jigger, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about oil prices moving on from natural gas. You discussed this presentation from Carl Pope in which he argued that Environmentalists should be trying to suppress the price of oil, get it to around seventy dollars a barrel, so that it's uneconomical to develop the most extreme forms of uh, petroleum and fossil fuels. And I know you wanted to bring that up.
2: Sure. Well, TJ, you and I have, you know, both seen Carl Pope's presentation, and when you look at the forward price curve, actually, uh, for Brent and WTI oil, it actually shows oil prices going down over the next few years. To I think seventy and ninety dollars respectively, um, you know, like as oil prices come down, and if we're actually successful at de- demand, as you know that you know your boss Atul um, Arya over there believes in, you know, right. then then are we like? It, it, how do you view that the economics of oil, right? I mean, look at Shell. I mean, Shell actually has a price warning this quarter because they said they went after too many difficult projects this quarter, and they should have maybe shown more restraint. But uh, if oil prices come back down and, you, do, you know, how does how does the oil industry square this with profits?
3: Well, and, uh, to be to be honest, uh, Jerry, the, the oil industry and the, the intricacies there are actually outside of the, my area of expertise, and so I, I would tread very carefully into getting some of the dynamics on the oil side, but I, but I will say that it is true that there is uh, something of a correlation in the more expensive oils, uh, the stuff that that have a production cost uh, north of 60 and, and up to $100 per barrel. Um, tend to be the more environmentally um, or greenhouse gas intensive uh, f- forms of supply. And so, um, as, you, as you cut down on the price, then you're going to tend to displace the more greenhouse gas intensive uh, bits of oil. But I actually think the bigger issue is that unconventional oils are, are the high-cost oils. And it's not really about the incremental uh, greenhouse gas footprint of, let's say, an oil from the oil sands in Alberta or from the the unconventional on the Bakken you know it's not that increment over what we get from Saudi Arabia but it's instead the fact that you're tapping those those at all and so if you're not climbing up to the the part of the uh, supply curve that's in the 50 60 70 dollars a barrel range then that means you're just consuming a lot less oil and from an environmental perspective um that's a great thing or from a greenhouse gas perspective that's a that's a big benefit and so you know it does make sense to see um, that there are both consumer benefits as well as environmental benefits from demand destruction, um, and I think that's one of the the big takeaways I've taken from Carl's uh, work, which is which is really interesting bit of work, and you know would recommend folks take a look at it. I'm not sure I agree with everything in it, but it is definitely thought provoking and and pretty powerful to say it's it's a joint economic and environmental benefit by staying on the lower portion of the uh, supply curve there.
0: All right. Well, TJ Diora is the Director of Business Development for IHS's Power, Gas, and Renewables business. Uh, TJ, we appreciate you being on here. This was fun.
3: Yeah, it was fun for me as well, and uh, I look forward to uh, having you guys keep on and and getting more insights from your
0: podcast. Thanks. We'll have to get real beers together sometime soon. (laughs) That sounds fantastic. Thanks, TJ. Thanks. All right. Let's talk about the State of the Union speech now. And in his so-called year of action, President Obama vowed to use his executive authority to deal with climate change. Many expected him to come out more aggressively than he has in the past, but there wasn't a whole lot new in the speech. I've got a clip here I want to cue up quickly.
4: One of the biggest factors in bringing more jobs back is our commitment to American energy. The all-the-above energy strategy I announced a few years ago is working, and today America is closer to energy independence than we have been in decades. One of the reasons why is natural gas. If extracted safely, it's the bridge fuel that can power our economy with less of the carbon pollution that causes climate change. Businesses plan to invest almost $100 billion in new factories that use natural gas. I'll cut red tape to help states get those factories built and put folks to work. And this Congress can help by putting people to work building fueling stations that shift more cars and trucks from foreign oil to American natural gas. It's not just oil and natural gas production that's booming. We're becoming a global leader in solar, too. Every four minutes, another American home or business goes solar. Every panel pounded into place by a worker whose job cannot be outsourced. Let's continue that progress with a smarter tax policy that stops giving $4 billion a year to fossil fuel industries that don't need it so we can invest more in fuels of the future that do.
0: Okay, firstly... I want to give a big shout-out to our GTM research team. Uh, That stat that the president used on solar installations, that a solar system was deployed every four minutes, came from a story I wrote in August using original data from our VP of research, Shale Khan. And we were all pretty psyched when he used that number. So kudos to Shale and the team for putting together that data. But looking at the rest of the speech, while Obama was clear in stating the scientific debate around whether humans are causing climate change is settled, he also didn't add much and I'm sure to Jigger's dismay, he continued to push his all-of-the-above strategy. So reaction to the speech. Catherine, let's start with you. What did you think of it in terms of framing and what he laid out?
1: Okay. So first, let's just say that earlier in that day, the House Energy and Commerce Committee voted on a, a, an amendment by Jan Schakowsky to to – to actually go on record as to whether they thought climate change was a fact. And that amendment failed 24 to 20. So that committee that sets energy policy in the House of Representatives clearly voted that climate change is not not a fact. So now we go to the State of the Union where... President Obama says it is a fact. Let's accept it. So my sense is the State of the Union was not meant to give us ideas about what we needed to do about climate change. What it was meant to do was kind of rally the base and talk about all those things like minimum wage, health care, voting rights, the things that could rally his base and give people the sense that he's still with those people who voted for him. But he did mention a lot of clean energy, as you said, the solar stat. Um, he talked about. About the high-tech manufacturing hubs, trying to help entrepreneurs. He talked about increase in basic R&D, about higher fuel economy standards, about the EPA rules. What he's saying is, and a lot of it is a little bit veiled um, because he doesn't want the Republicans going after a lot of what he's doing, but he really is doing a lot in the background and in the agencies. So I actually think he's accomplishing a lot. He just didn't, talk about it in sweeping big ideas in the State of the Union. And I'm sure Jigger probably has a different opinion.
2: If the president tells the American people that solar energy is ready to go, which he did, I think you are going to see an unprecedented explosion of solar this year because of that. I think a lot of folks who are- Do you really think it translates that directly? Yes, because every time- The solar industry is already talking to, let's say, 10 people for every 10 people they talk to, they close three of them. With the president mentions it in the State of the Union address, that number goes up to four in 10, right? So that means a significant increase, 25% increase in the closing ratio for the, the solar industry. I think that's a really big deal for the same amount of expenditures of marketing and sales dollars. But at the same time, I think the president sort of sent us mixed messages the first thing he said when he opened his mouth was the oil industry is doing fantastically well in the in the uh, in the country and then later in the speech he said climate change is a fact and then he said natural gas is a bridge to the future and then he ended with it takes you know solar uh, you know, solar gets pounded into the roof
0: every four minutes. Yeah, someone should and tell so, him that it doesn't get pounded. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> so I just think that, you know, like it's important for the president to sort of say this is like ready for prime time and to be unequivocal about it and to, the, to suggest that he can just do good things in the background and not actually like come up with this comprehensive proposal where he's actually backing something with the full weight of all the employees that work for him in the administration is letting him off the hook.
1: Oh, look, you know, State of the Union speeches are every single word is parsed first by the president. I just remember when Clinton was in office trying to get him to say the words energy and efficiency together and lobbying and lobbying and talking to the White House about please get him to mention energy efficiency. You know, everybody is trying to get him to talk about everything. And he has to say, all right, what am I really going to focus on So, you know, he did talk some about climate, but he didn't lay out this huge vision for it. So you kind of have to take your cues about, okay, what's he really going to get done in the next three years? And I think EPA is what he's going to get done, you know, in addition to immigration and the other other issues that he mentioned.
2: Well, I mean, look, I mean, Catherine, from that perspective, you're right. I mean, I give the president huge kudos for mentioning all the things he did mention. And I do think that That you're exactly right, that he did a good job of promoting us in the State of the Union, and I'm being a little bit too hard on him. But part of that's from the outtakes from that New Yorker interview, like clouding my judgment here, where he basically said that renewable energy wasn't ready to scale up in India and China fast enough, which meant they still probably have to build more coal.
0: You know, there is one change here that I think happened, and this was missed in the analysis after the speech. And, you know, the, you'll notice that the president really toned down his talk about these with these broad brushstrokes about a clean energy economy that he's had in the past. And yet he, he chose phrases, careful phrases like this won't happen overnight and it's going to force us to make hard decisions. And that was a pretty big reversal from some of his earlier talk when, when he talked about millions of green jobs and millions of electric electric vehicles on the road. Um and I've actually argued, I'm really interested to hear both of your opinions on this, because I've argued in the past that some of those very grandiose claims made it sound like we could make that transition very quickly. And when it didn't, people fought back politically. And so I really not, I'm not sure how I feel about this more subdued approach on this front, but it just seems to be like a direct response to that pushback that he's gotten. I saw this noticeable change, and I didn't really hear people talking about that much.
1: Well, the electric vehicle ran into the brick wall of Congress. Congress has absolutely stopped him in his tracks every time he's tried to do anything beyond the stimulus. You know, once Congress flipped over... Their main goal was to obstruct, and that's what they've done, so given that he can't do anything with congress he, if he makes a grandiose claim you know sitting behind him, John Boehner's just going to roll his eyes, and you know I honestly think his approach of okay, I'm going to do everything I can in the agencies. I know it's more subtle, but I agree, Stephen, that I think in the end we're going to see results. we just can't see them right right this very second,
2: yeah, look, I mean, I think it's a it's a president who feels beaten by Solyndra. And I think it's 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 a sad thing. I, I you know I like when you think about where renewable energy is today. It's it's a shining example of what's possible um, with U.S. ingenuity. And it's just it's sad that this president just doesn't have advisors who work for him that really can help him through this thing. I mean Podesta is great, but Podesta is actually being asked to save the entire White House, not just you know push for climate change uh, work. And so I do think that you know. That that Ernie Moniz has done a lot better than I expected, in actually just bringing calm to the DOE. It's extraordinary how frenetic and how um, just crazy DOE was, and not getting anything done under Stephen Chu. Um, and Moniz has really settled the place down and started putting in business plans and started getting fo- folks to focus on these quadrennial energy. The things, which I think will be very helpful.
1: Yeah, I was up in the secretary's office yesterday talking uh, to the folks about the Quadrennial Energy Review, some of their f- policy people, and I actually think that's going to have legs. It sounds like they're approaching it the right way, and it's going to be like the way EPEC-92 was that came out of a similar exercise. Um, I could see that being something that could really be taken forward as energy policy. <laughs> Coincidentally,
0: Every year, one cabinet
1: secretary is always
0: held back in case there's some sort of emergency you know, for continuity in government in case there's something bad – something bad happens. And Ernie Moniz was the one to stay back. <laughs> is that coincidence well, or does that have meaning? I, I don't think President
2: Obama wanted to compete with his hairdo.
0: <laughs> he could never compete with that hairdo. All right. Let's take a deeper dive into one of the president's big promises – Green jobs. And actually, let's talk about solar jobs. The Solar Foundation is out with its latest solar census for the U.S., showing that there are now 143,000 jobs in the industry as of the end of 2013, a 20% increase since 2012. Most of those jobs are in installation, which is not surprising as that's where most of the activity is in America. Um, but let's dissect some of these numbers. So, firstly, to you, Jigger, I mean, you've founded Sun Edison, a solar company that's created a lot of jobs in the industry. Anything in particular that jumps out at you about this latest census?
2: Well, it was interesting that the Solar Foundation basically pointed out in the in the press that they did around this that of the twenty thousand jobs or so that were added, that only about a hundred of them were in manufacturing.
0: And uh two thirds of the jobs were actually new. So You know, you see most of the companies actually creating new jobs, and very, very few of them were in manufacturing. It says a lot about the state of uh, solar manufacturing here in the U.S.
2: Yeah, well, manufacturing broadly in the U.S. And I mean, the the thing that's interesting is that there have been a lot of whispers um, in the industry, which I think were confirmed by this. Jobs. Report that Solar City, Sunrun, Sungevity, all these other big sort of downstream players are hiring like crazy. They just can't get enough smart people um, to apply to their jobs to actually get through the resumes to actually, um, you know, get on board. So it, it's a healthy time to be in the solar industry.
0: Yeah, uh, so, uh, Lind- Lyndon Rive was on one of the press calls, and he said that Solar City added two thousand jobs last year. Uh, across 17 states, really remarkable diversity there. Catherine, what jumped out for you in this report?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. One was why people—most people—are purchasing solar is because they want to save money, which is great because that's what you want it to be. You don't want to—you don't want to rely just on people wanting to be, you know, good citizens. <laughs> so that was cool. I also was looking at what kind of experience. Um, you know, people require in these jobs, you know, about half of them, you need some previous experience, only about 30% need bachelor's degrees and 13% associate degrees. So you get a variety of range of um, education. Um, But at the same time, they're not as many women as you would hope and the, and not nearly as many African-Americans. I mean, women are under 20% and African-Americans, you know, like 5% or less. So there are some pieces of the population that are underrepresented in the jobs. I think that hopefully will change. I'm hoping that's, that there will be some outreach to communities, um, to girls in schools, trying to get them interested in energy. That's always been a bit of a battle. Um, But hopefully that will change um, as those jobs increase. I mean, just to put a finer point on that, Catherine,
2: that that's not going to change unless we want it to change and change and make it change actively. Um, So I I think if if we let another year go by without the solar industry coming together to focus on um, increasing the percentages of those under underrepresented um, categories, then nothing's going to change
0: and do you actually think that there are good efforts underway to do that or is the industry lacking I more? haven't
2: Yeah, I haven't heard about it. When we were at Sun Edison, we worked hard at making sure that we got our, you know, percentage of women up there and Others And we didn't do it through sort of quotas or anything. We did it just by making sure enough qualified people applied. Um, that doesn't mean that we got the 50-50 women and men for sure. But uh, but we, we had some of the highest percentages of women in all the different categories of any of the solar industry players. And I'm sure that each of the companies are doing their part. But I do think it's important for the solar industry together to say we're going to work together to do this.
1: OK. And you got to get the solar babes then out of those solar conferences. That is reprehensible. <laughs> that stuff needs to stop, so that women are seen as professional, competent human beings.
0: Yeah, that's well, a major here, here. problem. Just at most trade shows, I, I agree with you. The the
2: one thing that I would say, though, Stephen, is that like I I rarely use jobs um, when I give speeches, um, and it's not because I don't believe in jobs. It's it's more that you know when you think about what the solar industry really does, uh, we've installed let's call it ten gigawatts of solar in the United States on a cumulative basis. Um, those 10 uh, gigawatts of, of solar actually is saving billions of dollars of electricity for consumers. And those billions of dollars are actually being used to hire more people by those companies that are saving money. And so I think that this fixation on jobs in our sector, whether it's solar or the oil and gas industry, I mean the the Bureau of Labor Statistics um, on August of 2013, put out a report saying that the oil industry basically adds something on the order oil and gas industry, like 2,000 jobs a month. So, you know, the solar industry did about 1,500 jobs a month last year. The oil industry does about 2,000 jobs a month. Both are irrelevant numbers. I mean, the 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 U.S. as a whole has to add 200,000 jobs a month to get us back to full employment. And so I think that our ability to help reduce costs for businesses and allow them to use that money to hire people in their companies is a much bigger number that we should be calculating.
0: So I think that that's a great perspective for a wonk to have, but for the general public, jobs – jobs numbers matter and when i look at the buses that are passing me every day on the streets of dc and i see the american petroleum institute's campaigns about how much how many jobs the oil and gas industry is creating i think it's really important that the solar industry and other clean tech industries step up and talk about the enormous growth that they're seeing because that messaging has to be challenged in the public's eye. But, but I do agree with you. I understand your point here. And actually going back to the economics of the technology itself in terms of saving people money, Catherine's first point was really interesting, and that is the Solar Foundation did this survey for the first time and asked installers what consumer motivations are. And they're increasingly saying that it's the economics of the technology that they want to save money or that they think they can beat the utility's price of power. I'm curious, um, you know, I know you were working a lot in the, the commercial sector, utility sector. What were customers across the board saying, say, five years ago? I mean, were the early adopters the ones that were doing it for just environmental reasons or compliance reasons? And, and have you seen that shift toward the actual economics itself?
2: Well, Sun Edison never sold on the environment, so we we weren't. I mean, I never allowed anybody to use the environmental metrics or anything else on the sales side. Um, after the fact, you know, we would use here's how many cars you took off the road or whatever else. But during the sales process, we were always targeting the CFO, and the CFO always wanted to know how much they were saving, you know, what lack of impact there was in the balance sheet. And, um, and we were really selling predictability of prices, which turned out to be really valuable because for many of those companies, they experienced 20%, 25% increases in their electricity rates after we locked them in to a fixed price. So, so I think it was really predictability of electricity that sold the deal um, five years ago and even today.
0: Excellent. Well, let's wrap up the show with our final segment, Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Uh, Catherine, what do you have this week?
1: Yeah, so we saw some, you know, not exactly bipartisanship this week at the State of the Union, Uh, but there was a bill that was introduced by Senators Coons and Rubio. And these are two guys. Coons is a Democrat from Delaware. Rubio, of course, is the Tea Party guy from Florida. They both came into the Senate in the class of 2010. And uh, Coons, remember, is the guy who introduced the MLP Parity Act to try to allow for renewables, efficiency, and storage to uh, be able to form master limited partnerships. These two guys got together and introduced a... Um, a bill called the America Innovates Act. Now, neither of them have DOE labs in their states, but this act would try to streamline the tech transfer process, reduce conflict of interest um protect ip and really incentivize public private partnerships with our national labs i think it's interesting because it shows that maybe we can get something done um to try to spur innovation try to try to help those entrepreneurs by using our national labs more effectively and it looks like it could be really bipartisan
0: jigger tell us something we don't know well i think You know,
2: I, like many people, have been following this um, crazy drought in California. And um, what was fascinating to me was that on January 28th, the governor of California said that there were 17 rural drinking systems that were going to run out of water within 60 days. Crazy. Um, It's just, it's, it's absolutely devastating what's happening out there. And I think, you know, when you think about... The, the sort of intersection with us and the water energy nexus and some of that stuff. I mean, this stuff is getting too real.
0: All right. So I want to bring up a topic that you actually briefly mentioned in the beginning of the show, Shell's Arctic drilling. And, um, you know, we talked about how low oil prices could potentially suppress demand for extreme fossil fuels. And Shell's kind of proving out that theory right now. Um, in 2012, they've they got permits for exploratory drilling in arctic waters and they stopped their operations because of uh, of vessel failures ice flows uh some environmental regulation problems and the company said it was going to try to pick up operations this year but um partly because of rising costs of infrastructure and some of its acquisitions and then lower sales of oil and gas the company is abandoning that project for the foreseeable future because they saw this 71% decline in revenue in the fourth quarter of last year. So they had to sell off a bunch of assets around the world, I think in Brazil and Australia. I think this starts to back up Karl Pope's thesis that if oil prices were to decline enough and fossil fuel companies saw a significant dip in revenue, their appetite for these risky projects would diminish. All right, let's close out the show here. Uh, To subscribe to this show, check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. You can also grab our RSS feed and integrate it into the player of your choice. It's at greentechmedia.com. And there you'll find links to some of the stories we discuss on the podcast this week. For questions, comments, story ideas, concerns, send me an email. It's lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. And uh, we always enjoy hearing from listeners. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you being with us each week. And a special thanks, as always, to my two co-hosts. Catherine Hamilton, have an excellent weekend and an excellent week.
1: You too. Can't wait for the next podcast.
0: You bet. Jigger Shaw, enjoy the rest of your stay in D.C., and we'll catch up with you next week. Thanks. Going to have to get a beer. <laughs> with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.